Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, I'm David Blight. Welcome to Slavery and Its Legacies, a podcast of the Gilda Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition. Slavery and Its Legacies interviews visiting scholars, activists, and others about their contributions to the understanding of slavery, past and present, and its ongoing role in the development of the modern world. This is David Blight, the director of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery and Abolition at, at Yale University. Our guest today for the podcast is Brian Stevenson, uh, who is the founding director of the Equal Justice Initiative, uh, the author of Just Mercy, a story of justice and redemption, and one of the most remarkable activists in the United States about the, about issues of um, judicial justice, uh, incarceration, uh, the history of lynching, and many other subjects, and we're thrilled to have Brian here today. He is speaking at the Divinity School at Yale and has been generous enough to take a few minutes to speak to us. Brian, welcome. Thank you. It's uh, great to be here. I'd like to talk with you a little bit about uh, the, the combinations in your background first before we get to the substance yeah. of your work. As I read you and read about you, you seem to be the product of both a deep religious uh, background and tradition and, of course, legal training. Mm. You, you, you combine, it seems to me, as much as anybody these days, these two traditions, the biblical church social gospel tradition with the great tradition of litigation. Yeah. Um, how did that come about, and how do you see yourself doing yeah. both of those? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, I grew up in a poor, racially segregated community where the church was really the only forum where we had any opportunity. This for, was in Delaware. Within southern Delaware, yeah. Um, and the church it was the only place you could, you could speak freely, where you could mm -hmm. be heard, where you could have an identity that was not shaped. Uh, by um, the kind of the prevailing norms about race and identity. And I started my education in a colored school. Mm -hmm. And the lawyers came into our community and made them open up the public school. Mm. So poor black kids like me would have an opportunity to go to high school. There were no high schools in my county when my dad was a teenager. None. Uh, none. Uh, he would have to leave the county to go to high school. And uh, when I was a, a little boy, they came in and they opened up the public school. And of course, that changed everything for me. I got mm. to go to high school. Mm. I got to go to college. Mm. And I eventually got to law school. I didn't, I'd never met a lawyer before I got to law school. Mm. But I remembered mm. uh, everybody talking about the lawyers. And I always had in my head that it was the law that made it possible for me to mm -hmm. experience the things that I was experiencing that were so valuable. And so both the church mm -hmm. and the law, the institution of the law, played this incredibly formative role in my life. Mm -hmm. And I guess you can say that, that, that those, uh, those, the impact of those two institutions mm -hmm. is still shaping me. Were you already aware then in at least high school or certainly when you went to college of the, the, the NAACP tradition of litigation, Charles Houston, yeah. David Marshall, and yeah, all. I, I, you know, um, I wasn't. They were, they were the great yeah, lawyers. Yeah, absolutely, know. that's right. No, I wasn't really aware of any of that. I mean, I uh -huh. knew what community people knew okay, about right. lawyers. We didn't actually know any lawyers, um, uh -huh. and I hadn't studied any of that work when I. But uh, the court was a place 
people could hope to go. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, it was the only place where you had any hope yeah, yeah, yeah. of being treated fairly. Uh, now, the criminal courts were, of course, something very different. Oh, right, right, right. And right. It, I saw that as an emerging institution that was the, you know, the source of a great deal of pain and sure. anguish. and. Sure wanted to to kind of think about how to deal with that growing problem. Well, I'd like to talk about Just Mercy, this marvelous book, uh, subtitled Justice and Redemption. It's part memoir. Mm -hmm. It's part the story of uh, lynching and Mm -hmm. other kinds of violence and uh, adjudication. how did that come about? It's partly, it really is partly a memoir of your own experience, yeah. but it's also a critique yeah. of a massive social problem. Yes. How did you choose the memoir yeah. mode? Well, it, it, it's a great question. I was Which really is such a tradition. Yeah, it is. It is. But, I was I was really struggling to figure out how to tell these stories. I know, it just seemed to me my own journey had been rooted in the idea that I wanted to be a lawyer. I didn't know what kind of lawyer I wanted to be. When I was in law school, I met condemned prisoners on death row. I had an internship that took me to death row. And it was in on death row that I saw uh, all of that history that I had studied and that I was concerned about made manifest in these individual cases. And it was very compelling. Right. So I started working on death penalty cases. And I really tried to challenge bias and discrimination in our criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. To me, it is the forum where over bigotry and discrimination has been the least impacted by mm-hmm. the civil rights movement. You see extreme disparities based on race and poverty mm-hmm. in our criminal justice system. And there's a sort of indifference mm-hmm. uh, in that mm-hmm. arena that the Bureau of Justice now predicts that one out of three black boys born in this country is expected to go to jail or prison. And nobody's really talking about that is some insight. One out of three. That wasn't true. projected now. Projected. Uh, That wasn't true in the 20th century or the 19th century, but it's become Mm -hmm. true in the 21st century. And so I wanted to, in my own career, I I was trying to fight against that. We kept filing cases. We won a lot of cases, but Mm -hmm. we were never able to get past a certain Mm -hmm. line uh, because there was this tolerance of racial yeah. bias in our criminal justice system. Yeah. And that's what... And belief in the death penalty. And belief in the death penalty, but also belief in it, uh, that these bad outcomes for people of color yeah. just weren't important. If you were yeah. innocent and yeah. wrongly convicted, yeah. it wasn't a big deal. Yeah. If you were unfairly sentenced, right. if you were a child, if you were disabled, yeah. nobody wanted to pay attention to the nuances and details right. that are the essential ingredients of whether an outcome is just or unjust. Is this how you met uh, Walter McMillan? It's how I met Walter McMillan. became a main story. Yeah, yeah. It was through the Walter McMillan case uh, that I began to see both the need uh, to transcend these racial boundaries and barriers, but also the limitations of that frame. And uh, after working on cases like Mr. McMillan, who was wrongly convicted in the very community where Harper Lee grew up and wrote right, to Kill right, Mockingbird. Right, no, yeah, Kill Mockingbird. You yeah. know, and there... You and couldn't there, make that up. No, you couldn't. <laughs> uh, but the disconnect that was evident where people celebrated that story, were proud right. of that legacy, and at the same time were so indifferent to the plight of an innocent black man facing execution, was one of the reasons why I wanted to get beyond uh, just what we typically do in our ca- day-to-day cases and start talking about 
this legacy mm-hmm. uh, of, of slavery and lynching mm-hmm. and segregation, our history of racial injustice, yeah. has, I think, really constrained our ability to be oh. uh, fair and just in the contemporary criminal justice context. Well, that question is what we're all about yeah. at a place like the Gilda Lehrman Center, is to understand not just the story of yeah. slavery, but its legacy. It's yeah. uh, always a difficult thing to explain yeah. to public audiences. Yeah. But you're doing it in a specific way. You're yeah. showing it through litigation. Yeah. You're, you're, which gets me to the Equal Justice Initiative. Yeah. That, that organ. You create this in the mid '90s. Uh, late '89 is when we first started. Oh, we okay, we okay. renamed in '93. But okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. In the '80s, early '90s, yeah. and it came out of these cases. That's correct. You began to raise some money to create a center. Yeah. Uh, to try to not just deal with death penalty cases, but children yes prosecution yes and, yes and and then and then you launched this effort to tell a broad public history yeah. of lynching yes and and many other things that's so right. how, how did eji take hold yeah because it is now uh one of the most um prevalent uh, yeah. important uh, such organizations in montgomery alabama yeah I, yeah I yeah yeah, I, uh, well, you know, for me, a, a real turning point began in 1987 when we lost a case at the United States Supreme Court called McCleskey versus Kemp. Right. You'll recall that case was the case where lawyers from the Legal Defense Fund and all over the country had engaged in a very sophisticated social science study of the death penalty, which proved mm-hmm. uh, that race was the greatest predictor of who gets capital punishment. Mm-hmm. You were 11 times more likely to get the death penalty in the state of Georgia if the victim was white than if the defendant was black. You were 22 times more likely to get the death penalty if the defendant was black and the victim was white. And these data were tested and challenged, but uh, uh, even the state of Georgia had to concede that race of victim was the greatest predictor of who got the death penalty. That went to the U.S. Supreme Court. The court accepted the data. They didn't say, we don't believe these data. They accepted the data, but nonetheless held that Georgia's death penalty is constitutional for two reasons. The first thing they said was, if we deal with these disparities based on race in the administration of the death penalty, Mm -hmm. it's going to be just a matter of time before lawyers come back to us and start complaining about these racial disparities for other kinds of criminal sentences. Mm -hmm. They'll point these disparities out in drug cases and rape cases and property cases. And they didn't want to open that door. And they didn't want to open that door. Justice Brennan, in his dissent, ridiculed the court's analysis Mm -hmm. as, quote, a fear of too much justice. And he was right. It's a great phrase. It is a great phrase. But the second thing the court said that was really devastating to me as a young lawyer working on that case was the second thing the court said was a certain amount of bias, a certain quantum of discrimination is, in our judgment, inevitable. That's the word they use to characterize these results. And walking into the Supreme Court, which has equal justice under law, and hearing that court talk about the inevitability of bias and discrimination, as someone who is a product of Brown versus Board of Education, yes, where the yeah. court said it's not inevitable that we right. have black kids in black schools mm-hmm. and white kids in white mm-hmm. schools, it just struck me that the court had lost its way, our society had lost its way in combating this legacy. Who on the court said it's inevitable that by the majority opinion was written by Justice Powell. It was a 5-4 decision. Oh. And actually, when he retired from the court, mm-hmm. he publicly expressed his regret about the decision that he made, but of course that was too late. And that began to make... God, does that feel relevant? Oh, yes, it does. It really (laughs) does. Uh, But it started making me think, well, how is it that we no longer believe that we need to 
challenge racial bias and discrimination, particularly in something as extreme as the death penalty, yeah. that we can concede yeah. to bias. And that made me actually start asking questions. Well, what have we been dealing with historically and what are we dealing with now? And, and that's how you start shifting your lens away from the particulars yeah. of slavery or the particulars of lynching or the particulars yeah. of segregation to the larger question uh -huh. of the narratives behind slavery yeah. and the yeah. legacy of slavery. Yeah. And the, because the, you couldn't say that as Justice Powell yes. if you hadn't consumed a That's certain right. amount of history That's right. that, that simply had concluded that there were inevitable aspects of the dysfunction of black communities yeah. or the aftermath of slavery right. or something, That's even right. if it's unconscious. That's exactly right. And that's the heart of it. Because mm -hmm. if you think that slavery was just uh, being forced to, into involuntary servitude, yeah. if you think of lynching was just mob justice or mob violence, yeah. if you think of segregation yeah. as something annoying yeah. but not essential, then you're not going to understand yeah. the nature of this challenge. Yeah. But if you think about it as I do, as something that has corrupted our society. I don't think we're free in America. I think we are yeah. actually struggling to recover from this legacy, and I think it yeah. impacts all of us. I think yeah. of our history of racial inequality the way I think about smog. I think it's all in the air. It doesn't oh, take yeah. much for us to have tension yeah. and conflict. It belongs to everyone. It belongs whether they to know everyone, it or not. That whether they know it or not. And when you begin to kind of talk differently about that, you understand that your obligations, your mm -hmm. response to it, has to be different as well. Well, this takes me to this question of responsibility. Yeah. yeah. Because you've also now forged this effort to put historical markers yes. in the roughly 4,000 yeah. places where we have yeah. recorded lynchings yeah. from the late 19th century to the yeah. middle of the 20th century. Yeah. And you're building a major memorial yes. outside Montgomery. Yes. Right? Now, this is a public history project yes. which is making an enormous statement about uh, a kind of national responsibility. Yes. The story belongs to all of us. Yes. It's a public memorial. Yes. Uh, not unlike we now are saying that African-American history belongs to everyone yeah. because we have this major new museum on the yeah. wall in Washington yeah. and so on and so forth. And we've been saying this in book after book after book sure. for 40 years. But how did this come about, this effort to... Mark yeah. lynchings. I mean, yeah. We mark so many things about American <laughs> history, but yeah. not many towns want to mark this. That's right. Well, I think if you live in the American South, you begin to quickly um, get overwhelmed by the iconography. Uh, the American South is littered oh, with the iconography of the of the Confederacy. Sure. And we have every town green. Every right, absolute, absolutely. And we romanticize that era in the mid nineteenth century. Yeah which should be characterized and defined by the horror of slavery. Mm -hmm. uh, in Alabama, my state, Confederate Memorial Day is a state holiday. Mm -hmm. Jefferson Davis's birthday is a state holiday. We don't have Martin Luther King Day. It's Martin Luther King slash Robert E. Lee Day. Our two largest high schools are Robert E. Lee High and Jefferson Davis High. And it actually began with me mm -hmm. working on a street where the slave trade was so active oh, yeah, yeah. and not a word about it, yeah. right by the river, right, from, right. From, from the Alabama River, from the 150 yards the domestic away. slave trade. Domestic like slave trade. Depot. Of the, depot, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thousands of enslaved people mm -hmm. and not a word about it. So we actually put out a report about the Montgomery mm -hmm. slave trade mm -hmm. and wanted to put up markers in downtown Montgomery because it's a community that loves talking about mid-19th century history right. but not slavery. And we decided to put these markers up and the Alabama Historical Association said, oh, your research is accurate, it's all true, 
but we can't support putting these markers up because it would be too controversial to put up markers about slavery. Safe to put up occasional markers about the civil rights movement because that has become some sort of consensus Absolutely. victory. Yes, right? exactly. But we can't go. Yeah. yeah, we can't go back. And yeah. we were just so challenged by that. We started. Mm -hmm. Uh, talking to the leadership and eventually got up three markers in downtown Montgomery about the slave trade, the domestic slave mm -hmm. trade, the Montgomery slave trade, slave depots, slave warehouses, slave auctions. And the reaction mm. from the African-American community was much, much stronger than I expected. That's People great. were so energized. How long ago was that? Those that was in 2013. Oh, okay. That's very recent. Yeah, I, very recent. John Lewis's uh, civil rights pilgrimage in... 11, I yeah, think, 12, yeah, 11 yeah. or 12, I think. Yeah. And we went to Montgomery. Yeah. They, they weren't quite there. Weren't there? No. It just didn't no. happen until December of 2013. Oh, okay, okay. And right. now I see communities of people gathered around these markers, uh -huh. visitors who weren't expecting That's to encounter fantastic. this. So that was very inspiring. So when we did our big report on lynching, yeah. we had the same goal. Uh, we wanted to mark all the spaces where lynchings took place because I think... How's that going? It's going the well. Yeah. We, we, we've, we've just confirmed... Uh, over 4,000 sites. Uh, we've started erecting markers. We've yeah. got a half a dozen up. We're going right. to do another three. Do you have to the negotiate these with town councils? Well, or it, how do you it varies. You know, <laughs> yes, it's been tricky. Alone. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so it's probably worth pointing out that the, the first three have been in majority black communities where these negotiations were a lot less complicated than they're going to be moving forward. Right. Some have taken place on private property where we could get permission, but we're starting now mm. to kind of get past that. We put one up in Gadsden uh -huh. with city support. Uh -huh. We put one up in Abbeville, South Carolina. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. We put one up in, um, uh, we're about to put one up in Tuscaloosa, and uh, there will be uh -huh. one in LaGrange, Georgia, where the uh -huh. whole community has been involved. Mm -hmm. And I just think we can't assume that people are going to go into museums mm -hmm. that are about slavery or lynching or segregation. No. We've got to do things in the public space. Oh, and absolutely. I've been inspired by what you see in Germany. If you go to Berlin, you can't go 100 meters without seeing the Stepping markers stones. and the stones. Yes. They're amazing. And it just it's makes... It's become a new model. It has way. become a model. Yeah. And it makes everybody reflect on the yeah. horrors of the Holocaust right. in ways that we haven't reflected right. about slavery and lynching. And so for me, this is an incredibly important project. I want to change the landscape of America. I want us to be more truthful right. about I, this legacy. I couldn't admire that more. And it's very interesting that that model in Germany yeah. where... <laughs> Ironically, you find an engagement with that past, yes. uh, that the most horrific past, yes, more so than most anywhere else. Oh, I think because that's right. In, for lots of reasons, yes. not least of which is the world sort of forced it. Yes, uh, but no one's ever forced. Yeah. Americans to, we have to do it ourselves. We have to do it ourselves. <laughs> but I'm amazed at how much the identity of Germany has changed oh, because yeah. of this effort. Oh, yeah, yeah. If somebody asked me to go and give a lecture there, I don't hesitate. No. I would hesitate if there were Adolf Hitler statutes everywhere. Oh, God, yeah. If they were celebrating uh, oh, the oh. Nazis and fascists, I couldn't be comfortable no, there. No. And that's sort of what we're doing in the American South. I've been, I've, since I write about, I wrote about, Civil War memory yeah. at great length. I've been asked so many times, particularly by Europeans, yeah. people who come here, yeah. how is it that the <laughs> lost has their monuments everywhere, yeah. all over the South, and yeah. even in the North? Yes. Uh, what about Germany, they yes. say? And then you have to try in some soundbite to tell them, well... The side that lost here never went away. Yes, and that's right. they kind of won the peace. Yeah, you, know? yeah. um, you and I share an interest, I know, in Frederick Douglass. Yes. Uh, you've just wrote, written an introduction for a new edition of Douglass's narrative, 
I too have an edition of Net the Narrative, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Douglas gives uh, an amazing anti-lynching speech mm-hmm. at the end of his life. Uh, it's called The Lessons of the Hour yeah. in 1894. It's his last great cause. Yeah. Uh, it's a remarkable uh, speech and even has so many modern rings to it. Yeah. But in it, I mean, I just thought I would bring this up. Sure. There's, there's a quote here that yeah. I don't know if, if your organization uses. But, but he was always speaking about this in this era when everyone was talking about the Negro problem, mm-hmm. the race problem, mm-hmm. the race problem, the race problem which is this story, this yeah, narrative that you were right. referring to. Yes. It's this, this Negro problem. Yes. How do we solve it? And in the speech, he says, not a Negro problem, I'm quoting, not a race problem, but a national problem, whether the American people will ultimately administer equal justice to all varieties of the human race in this republic. The argument against lynching to him had to begin by targeting this historical narrative. Yes. There's this idea that we just... America has this inherent Negro problem. Yes. And if you begin there... That's right. Then it's not too many strides to this idea that, well, you know, a mob... You know, there is mob justice sometimes. It's just necessary and so forth. You know, it's interesting to look back. That's the 1890s. Absolutely. At the time, lynching is just exploding. Yeah. Well, I love Frederick Douglass because he was so insightful and brilliant and could articulate the truth of these challenges that very few people would. I wholeheartedly agree with that. I mean, for me, the challenge that we face in this country is that the North may have won the Civil War, but the South won the narrative war. Mm-hmm. They were able to carry a narrative forward that made their treason and the insurgency mm-hmm. and the violence of that war romantic, mm-hmm. something about which you should be proud. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe the great evil of American slavery was involuntary servitude and forced labor. I think the great evil of American slavery was the narrative of racial difference that we created, this construction of a Negro problem, mm-hmm. the ideology of white supremacy. And if you look at it through that way, which is the way I think Frederick Douglass was so brilliant at articulating, mm-hmm. you begin to recognize that because we don't deal with this right. narrative of racial difference in the 13th Amendment, right. slavery doesn't end in 1865, it just evolves. Right. It turns into this new era right. of terrorism and right. violence, and we right. use that violence to control. We distinguish the lynchings, the hangings right. of African Americans from mob justice against white people right. and others, mm-hmm. because they weren't trying to terrorize the white community. That was right. frontier justice. Right. Uh, that was violence in places where there was no functioning criminal justice system. African Americans right. were lynched in places where there was a functioning criminal justice system, sometimes right. literally on the and, courthouse lawn. And involved in the lynching. And involved in the lynching. You know, one last question sure. about Douglas, and then we'll probably have to wrap up. In his analysis of lynching in that famous speech, uh, among the arguments he makes, and I, I just wanted to hear you reflect on this in our own political yeah. moment, he says the ultimate aim of lynchings is disfranchisement. Yes. In other words, he's arguing it's a political motive. Now, lynchings had many motives, but he says, ultimately, you kill a Negro, you kill black votes. Yes. And, of course, he had an important point. This is is the decade, 1890s, the beginnings of disfranchisement laws. And, you know, throughout the history of racial violence, and when we look today, the vote isn't being suppressed by violence, it's being suppressed by laws. Yes. But, 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 he was right at that. Time. Absolutely. The, the goal was get blacks out of politics yes. and back into labor. Yes. That, you know, it, it, it sounds so 
streamlined to say that. But right. But no, and, and, it, absolutely right. I, 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 yeah, no, it's no. very, very, it's prophetic uh, because you could not enforce the Jim Crow, the segregation, the racial hierarchy, the disenfranchisement that characterizes the first half of the 20th century uh, without violence, without some means of getting people of color uh, fearful enough that they would not resist. And lynching was a powerful tool to do that. Yeah. And in fact, what it did was create this exodus of right. millions of African Americans because they couldn't be free in this region. Right. They went north. And, or, and they went north. And, and so I think he's absolutely right. And it's relevant today because if we're going to insist on engaging in the rhetoric of law and order, of violence and intimidation, of might makes right, if we're going to use our power yeah. not to understand and yeah. include, but to intimidate and threaten, yeah. then we're going to see the same manifestations uh, uh, of this disenfranchisement, this excluding, this marginalization. And I'm already seeing it uh, with the Supreme Court retreating from the Voting Rights Act and the erection oh, yeah. and creation of all of these new barriers yeah. to access to voting. And even before Trump's election. Even before the Trump election, that's exactly right. Do you mind if I ask this last question? Sure. Which everybody is asking. I mean, in some short way, I get asked every day by students. I mean, how are you answering that question now of how we deal with, cope with, organize in this moment of Trump presidency. Yeah, yeah. On these issues or other issues. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not, uh, yeah. that has no simple answer. Sure, sure, know, but, sure. But what is your take? Well, I, I, I really do believe we, we, we can't just be angry, uh, we can't just be yeah. engaged. We've got to be strategic and we've got to be tactical. One of the problems of, of our current status is a lot of the people who are progressive and have an understanding of these issues have become so privileged yeah, yeah. that they're not willing to make choices and between passive. bad and worse, you know, which is yeah. what we've always had to do. Yeah. If we're strategic, if we're tactical, we can actually revive all of that progressive movement in America that mm -hmm. created an end to segregation and lynching and slavery, and we can create an end to mass incarceration mm -hmm and exploitation of marginal people and healthy immigration policy. Mm -hmm. But we're going to have to be more strategic, mm -hmm. tactical, and committed to the idea of progress, mm -hmm. uh, not just the rhetoric of it. And mm -hmm. I think if we do that, we'll see some things change. Let's hope. Uh, Brian Stevenson, I could talk to you all day. Oh, uh, it'd be my honor. I'm afraid we can't. Uh, but thank you very much for being part of this uh, podcast series with us. And. Uh, Good luck with everything you're attempting oh, to do. Thank you and very you have much. Many supporters here around Yale. Oh, well, thank you. you. I really appreciate that. Thanks very much for coming. You're very welcome. Slavery and Its Legacies is brought to you by the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, a part of the Whitney and Betty McMillan Center for International and Area Studies at Yale University. Production support is provided by the Yale Broadcast Center. For more information about the center, its activities, and this podcast series, visit glc.yale.edu.